Hello, and welcome to the Innovation Engine podcast. Today, I'm joined by friend and colleague, Chris Hansen, Three Pillars Senior Vice President of Media and Information Services, and we're thrilled to welcome Edwin Wong as our guest today. Edwin provides a unique perspective on the media landscape. He's led research and data-driven B2B strategies for various media companies over the past 20 years, working with companies such as Pinterest, Yahoo, BuzzFeed, Nielsen, and now works as Vox Media's Senior Vice President of Insights and Innovation. So Edwin, we have been so excited to speak with you. It's um, a conversation that you and I have talked about for many, many moons and uh, bringing you onto the podcast to really share more about what you do, your insights around media and your perspectives really on uh, the media industry and other digital focused industries as well. So tell us a little bit about as SVP of Insights and Innovation, what does that mean and what are your main goals at Vox? First of all, it's so nice uh, to see you again and to hear your voice. Um, I, I love just sitting next to you at, at Code and uh, I'm looking forward to seeing you very soon uh, in the fall. Vox Media has been a, a dream to, to work at. And this whole concept of insights and innovations, uh, while it might seem nebulous, uh, actually is pretty operational. I, I would, you know, when I talk to some of my friends, they ask me, what is insights? What do you do? And, you know, for the most part, it, it's really about operationalizing uh, data internally and then also leveraging partners like yourself, data partners externally to really help the company in a, in a couple of different ways. Uh, because I work so much with advertisers every day, it's helping them understand the actual value and the value proposition of why Vox Media across uh, the, the number of brands and diverse networks that we have. And so New York Magazine, The Verge, Vox News, Polygon, uh, you know, just some really wonderful places for, for them to, to think about connecting with the consumer um, and so for the most part, once they actually uh, invest in uh, working with us through the many ways, whether it's podcasts, branded content, advertising, commerce opportunities, uh, we help them understand uh, whether uh, they're achieving success uh, through a multitude of attribution tools and, and whether there's a return on investment. And so that, that's probably a very tactical part of the job that uh, I think any uh, mature insights organization would have. There's also something that I, I actually quite enjoy as well that's a little less tactical, uh, that I, I'm a psychology major. I, I think we, we spoke about that last time, but you know, not, not too much. And I really love understanding human behavior. And I have a humanistic perspective when it comes to thinking about why people are doing some of the things that, that, that they do. And you know, I would say over the last 16 to 18 months, they've been some of the most challenging yet invigorating for, for us because so much obviously has changed for us as marketers and even as human beings. And so, um, you know, we try to frame and learn from uh, some of those changes. And so, you know, we do really interesting work that helps people just understand what's happening in society and why consumers are actually doing what they're doing. And so, We've done some really interesting work, and I'm so grateful for that around, you know, what's happening when it comes to the Black Lives Matter movement as a result of systemic racism. You know, how marketers should actually think about the changing dynamics of brands in, in an age of COVID. And even as many of us are starting to reemerge from COVID right now and, and start to 
get back to work and start to think about how to connect in marketing, you know, how do we do that in an empathetic way? So those are some of the things that, you know, sort of crystallized uh, my job at Box and I'm very lucky to be there. Edwin, first of all, great meeting you. Can't wait to hang out at Code with, uh, with you and Jennifer. Second of all, I've been a lifetime reader of New York Magazine as a New Yorker. So, uh, uh, and also a voracious eater, consumer, and uh, and Grub Street. So, uh, definitely makes uh, makes making going out my decisions on where I go uh, a lot more helpful. So, it's uh, a big fan of Box Media. You, yeah, you mentioned the the pandemic and some of the changes that maybe the pandemic accelerated. You know, just changes in the way you know people, perhaps, or changes in the media industry potentially ways in which people have engaged with media have changed because of the pandemic. That that humanistic approach that you're taking, I think, sort of carries through to how you engage with customers at Vox Media. What changes have you seen? Is it channels that have changed? Maybe people not reading the magazine, but going online or going to app. Have new revenue streams opened up? Have new ways to engage consumers emerged pre-pandemic and then post? Yeah, it's passe, but true to say that I think what what COVID actually did was accelerate some of the trends that we were likely going to see, but we just saw much, much quicker. Um, And then also, I think what was interesting is, you know, even Jennifer and I kind of joked about this, like even the last time, as a result of the pandemic, we were introduced to new brands. uh, And in some cases, it's just because the brands that we usually buy were not available uh, and so, you know, it, it's remarkable how during these larger life shifts uh, in, any, in any of our NBA classes, we talk about life stage marketing, uh, it's inflection points that allow for uh, new changes for our habits, but also new introductions to brands that are going to stay with us for a lifetime. Digital media, SVOD, AVOD platforms, you know, we saw some really good things happen for us because, you know, if you think about the role of news as an example, what better way to actually channel my stress and my uncertainty than to go on Vox and read something to say, okay, what's going on right now? How do I actually think about the several large scale events that have impacted us over the last 18 months? How do I think about you know, COVID-19 and, and what's happening with you know, the vaccines? You know, even uh, the, the tumultuous nature of of what happened on January 6th and, and all of that, we were digitally, literally uh, looking at what was in front of us and we needed a lot of context and explanation. And on the flip side of that, the, the stress that actually was created, we would need you know, Polygon and some gaming content to really kind of ease, ease that stress. Uh, you know, all, and to your point, Chris, you love Eater. You know, one of the things that I think people talk about often is like, well, it is about being in service journalism. And so, you know, Eater's pivot in actually talking about how you might impact in a positive way your local restaurant that you love uh, to eat at, you know, those are the kinds of things that I think became much more important to our consumption habit. And and I think that, you know, that ended up being a boon for for Vox Media. And, you know, a surprise for me was really... um, the, the whole concept of podcasts. You know, I think I think for for many of us, you know, my, my favorite quote came from my a friend that I actually met recently, Hatal Patel, uh, over at iHeart. She said that 
we run out of time on our eyes. And right, right now we're on a Zoom together. And we had thought like, okay, there's no commutes. And does that actually mean the, the whole like concept of podcast going away? And what we actually found is that it actually uh, increased in terms of time spent. And I, I joke often that my wife is probably listening to a podcast right now, so she doesn't have to listen to my voice. But we're filling the gaps uh, of where media used to be with our ears, uh, with stories that actually matter to us. And so the 200 podcasts that we have actually available at Vox, we started to see some really interesting things happen and the brand started to develop. And you know, it, what's interesting is that during this time, you are actually seeing new innovative mediums. And quite frankly, it's because we were all stuck in a place and the only way we can interact and learn is, is through digital channels. And so, you know, I think it's going to change the way we literally uh, work, the, the way we literally engage with each other and the, and the way we're going to be spending time in the, in the decades to come. Yeah, I don't think Clubhouse could have been a success outside of the pandemic. And then all of a sudden in the pandemic, you're like, well, this fairly low code engagement platform has taken off. And, and I'm curious to see how that changes for them in the future, like what the sort of trajectory of, of Clubhouse is, but what that idea is, how that bleeds into other media channels, how people take that as, yeah, I don't have to focus always on the eye, always on the written word, but now focus on the ear uh, and go back to something a little, maybe old school, a, a new form of radio, a new form of, of, of audio engagement. It's pretty interesting. So Edwin, how have brands responded to the changes in, uh, in media consumption and uh, sort of the changing media landscape? Yeah, I think this has uh, been ongoing for the, the last uh, decade or so. You know, for Vox Media, our take is how, how do you actually become the content that, that consumers need and want to consume? You know, we've, we've done some pretty interesting things. As an example, just this past year, uh, after the Black Lives Matter movement as a, as a result of systemic racism. We worked with Ben and Jerry's on a podcast to really help consumers and, and listeners understand uh, as we chronicle uh, racism in America. And it was a, a six-episode podcast that was done uh, in partnership with uh, Jeffrey Robinson um, of the ACLU. And uh, literally, they decided that they wanted to sponsor something that was this important for, for all of us to actually learn of this moment and why this was uh, important. Um, and just uh, a couple of days ago, we were, we were shortlisted for uh, a Cannes Award. I, I get to work with some really talented folks, uh, Armando Turco and his team. Um, they, they did a, a very great piece of work, which was really a documentary with KitchenAid to look at executive chefs who are women and, and their journey in a space that doesn't have enough and should have more women. I mean, as a result of that, it was actually featured on Hulu for a time because of its provocative nature and because of its honest look at the biases that I think these women were facing and, and needed to be uh, talked about as they carved their path. And so if you really think about just those two examples, um, it gives you just really good opportunity to teach consumers something new that would be of value, um, but it also places the brand at the center uh, of doing something that I think is responsible and really meaningful to society. And so 
we're seeing more and more of those examples at, at Vox um, all across the 13 networks and, and those networks wanting to work with the brands to, to produce things just like this. So this ties in nicely to what we were just talking about. So, and it's something that's on a lot of people's minds. It's summer, things are mostly opening back up. And do you believe streaming will be king as the year goes on? If so, why? If not streaming, are there other ways of taking information that may continue to grow that, that may have come out uh, come as a result of the last 18 months? Yeah, I, I honestly believe that the way that we're uh, taking in um, video content uh, is here to stay. It's been interesting because there's been such an abundance, different sorts of streaming services. And uh, the, the whole concept of uh, franchises is going to be even more important uh, and content um, and uh, content identification uh, through these platforms. You know, one of the things that we actually also saw grow uh, is, is subscriptions. Obviously, um, Chris, you, you talked about earlier that you were a New York Magazine subscriber. Thank you very much. You know, we're, we're definitely seeing people wanting to get back to information that they can trust and information that uh, gives them context to some of the larger issues at hand right now. I, I think that that's going to be even more incredibly important, not just to the consumers, but we're ultimately hearing CMOs talk about it through you know, buying more responsible media, of which I think Vox, Vox has been thinking about that for several years. But that value proposition, I think, is stronger than ever. And, you know, just like really interesting things like e-commerce. I know that uh, while many of us are going to rush to the source and we're starting to see some of those numbers come back, I, I think that e-commerce is definitely something that is here to stay uh, because of its role in our lives um, already in terms of you know, it's a muscle we flexed for 18 months. So uh, there is going to be some habit, habits or are habits that, that have already formed. Uh, but most importantly, I think from a streaming video perspective, yeah, we, we definitely are committed to that space for sure. Uh, one of the things that we are incredibly proud of is, is even some of the things that we've actually done more recently with, say, a Netflix, where we partnered up with Headspace to, to launch two series to help people sleep better. Uh, to think about wellness uh, in a very different way. And, you know, we see really interesting opportunities of what people are actually want. And, you know, five years ago, would you have even thought of going to Netflix to deal with not sleeping well? I think the way the consumer is actually leveraging the platforms, they're changing and, you know, understanding that and really thinking about thoughtful content relationships with them uh, is, is where I think Vox Media actually does a, quite a good job. And along the lines of some of those changes, artificial intelligence plays such a role today in, in many industries. What are some of the, the new trends that you're seeing and that you think will continue to influence and change the media industry, including algorithms, artificial intelligence, how those technologies are playing a role? Yeah, it's, it's interesting because I'm going to not even look at algorithms, but look up from even, you know, 10,000 uh, feet up. And, you know, one, one interesting thing that I speak about often is that, you know, there's a lot we can learn from other industries. And I, I've been working on a piece of work with my good friend, Lynn Mata over at Warner Media, and we were thinking about the video ecosystem. And I was, I was reading some articles about the economy 
specifically around uh, scarcity and abundance and how in some cases when there is scarcity and make or when when we center on something it will make something scarce and other things abundant and you know as i was reading about the the that and its impact on covid i started to sort of apply that same scarcity model to what's happened in media uh, over the past 50 years and you know we've gone from a media that's driven by platforms then audiences and where I believe we're headed next is actually content. And you know, I'm sure you're going, what do you mean by that? Uh, and you're scratching your head, I can see you guys. And But if you look at the historical nature of media, ecosystems that used to be uh, centered on platforms, uh, what they made scarce, obviously, were there were a couple channels, a couple shows, and what was abundant was uh, human attention and this monolithic mass of people just watching. We always talk about the Super Bowl, we talk about MASH, and the proliferation of digital experiences, cable channels, and data flowing into the system that allows me to know who Jen is, who Chris is. It actually moved platforms away and it became audience centric. And when you know the audience, what ends up actually being uh, very abundant are platforms, distribution, but what was actually scarce were premium. Uh, content platforms. You know, you might have had Hulu, you might have had Netflix at the time, uh, and and also there was ample amounts of data flowing through that allowed us to identify the audience. Well, what's happening right now? We're in an age. Some of the new trends that I think all media partners are dealing with, where we're going to see the demise of the cookie. Well, yesterday Google actually told us something different, but that's still coming. Uh, iOS 14 and 15 are just going to really think about privacy different. Um, and I think what's actually happening is as Data actually exits out of the system and we see a proliferation of SVOD and AVOD services. It actually commoditizes even this whole concept of premium. And what ends up happening is we're going to see us get back to a place where we're focused in uh, really on the content. And, you know, I think that what ends up happening is what you will start to see is a congealing of, of scale around those platforms that actually hold the content people want to watch. Because you no longer think about the platforms, you think about the shows that those platforms have, and that's why you choose them. You no longer think about you know, the platforms, you think about the brand like Eater, Verge, Polygon, things that we are trying to build. And we, we have you know, some really great brands that we can surround content and, and all sorts of things. And, and as a result of that, this next result is this content-centric system that not only is built to engage the consumer, but many publishers are using to engage the marketer through context. The reason why I love this is what, what ends up being the actual main dish content used to just be a feature that we left on the side of the road. It was all about platform distribution when actually that was the wrong formula. And so it excites me because I think that this content-centric ecosystem is not only going to power what's going to happen with marketers and how they connect to consumers, but a whole wealth of you know, new ways to engage, whether it's through podcasts, live experiences, videos, and it creates a whole metaverse around this content. Uh, and so I think franchise IPs and brands are going to be even more important over the next 10 to 15 years. That was amazing. And I absolutely, well, one, I, I agree that 
we're now seeing a shift, a dynamic shift where the consumer and their content that, and how those two things connect, the content they want to consume and a focus on the consumer are starting to come together in a way that 30 years ago when the last episode of MASH aired and, and it was on CBS and it was the, the most watched television show ever. I don't know if that still holds the record, but let's just go with that. You couldn't have it. There was no way to connect the experience on the customer side with the content. People just came in mass and consumed in mass. And now you have this proliferation of channels, content, and a consumer experience that is, is really at the verge of being well aligned. You mentioned the cookie going away. Yes, there was this day of execution yesterday. So I think everybody took a little pause, a sigh, and said, great, yes. we have a little more time to figure all of this out. How do you think that consumer experience now is going to change with the cookie maybe going away a few years from now as opposed to a few months from now? Is, it, is, is there going to be a shift on the, for media companies on how they engage with customers and how important is the data that you have on your subscribers or your consumers or the people who watch, listen to your podcast? How is that going to play in now? Well, it's, it's interesting. Uh, about two years ago, I talked about even the, our use of data and that use in understanding audiences. And for marketing, for too long, we've actually used a microscope to understand people when you should have been using a telescope. Uh, and I have to give credit to Elizabeth Dow, who works on my team, and she was the one that you know was talking about it in that way, and I love it. And that's the right way to actually think about it. And you know, when you actually think about the context of why someone is connecting with your content, not what they look like, there's all sorts of things that I think create value for them as a consumer and you as a marketer. For us in 2019, we knew it was the right thing to launch Forte, which every publisher has a, a first-party data solution. But I think we were a little bit early in the cycle of when we launched it because we, we just really thought that this was the right thing to do in the way we engage with the consumer. And so, you know, it takes into context the actual network, how you got there, when you got there, uh, what the content actually is. And so, you know, this, this notion of context, I think, is an incredibly important one. It's not, you know, what we used to think about in the late 90s, early 2000s, car brand with car you know, content. It, it's a lot more sophisticated. And I think it ladders back to what Jen asked, uh, Jennifer asked earlier around AI. Uh, all of this uh, is done in a way where you really do need to leverage a lot more sophisticated algorithms to really understand the user and their mindset so that you're pairing the experiences. And our hope is if you think about that context in a thoughtful, respectful way, the ultimate goal is you do drive higher engagement and ROI for advertisers, uh, of which we've actually seen a little bit of that um, over the last couple of months. And, and we're quite proud of that. Jen and Chris, you guys are my first folks outside of the organization where I was talking about the changes in the scarcity uh, economy and how it's impacting media. Did it make sense? It did. Absolutely. I actually, as you were saying it, I was like, please, Edwin, will you, every time we talk, I say, Edwin, you need to write about that. You need to be on our podcast and come talk about that. You should write a blog post. I know there are only 24 hours in a day and you, you're busy 23 and a half of those hours. But when you were talking about it, I just thought that was a fascinating 
way to envision it and also think through kind of that. I thought it made sense. And I, uh, uh, Chris, you were about to say something as well. No, I, I loved it and, and aligned to it very well. Seeing that just in talking to a lot of media clients, there, there, is, there is a dynamic happening yes. that I think you were able to very concisely. And I totally agree with Jennifer. Like if you could somehow get that down into a byline, white paper, something, I think it's great. And and by the way, I love the article that you'd put in the questionnaire. There, there, there was something, there was a pattern there of, and I think it aligns really well to the way media companies need to deal with the future. It's a, it's less about the, the concrete thing. The thing could be a publication. It could be a piece of content and more about experience. When you mm-hmm. saw people coming out of the pandemic going, I want to travel. I want experiences in my life. It wasn't about, I need a concrete piece of goods. I need something that enriches my life. And yeah. when I think about media companies and, and the future is if they can tap into that yeah. somehow, some way through you know, membership models, some sort of experiential community that you can, you know, bring people of like minds together, people who like food, people who like to cook, people. There's there's so much potential there just beyond the content. I think that's where you guys are going, but I don't see enough media companies moving in that direction. So that that article really sort of cemented that idea with me, which I thought was great. Some of the darker parts that I write about as well, just because I, I think is important is we are we are seeing the first run of of real goodness for the financial parts of our market with the reopening but the concept of collective loss and coping are just as important and you know if you talk to any consumer three quarters of them are going to say yeah I, I lost something this this last 18 months it, it could have been a person because of covid time so many women um, and and what leaving the workforce and why they had to leave and leaving their identities behind and having to reshape what that looks like. We haven't talked about the grieving process enough. And psychologically speaking, there's a whole set of mania that happens when we don't cope correctly. And that mania actually, its first form usually is consumerism. And I, I would want society to think about not going from 1918 to 1929 again. Mm-hmm. And I'm not wanting that. I'm not suggesting that that's going to happen. But are we thinking about how as brands and media companies, if, if we're not going to deal with that, it's going to happen. And, and that collective coping is something that I think brands and media, uh, you know, we can actually take part in leading. Uh, through empathy. And so those are just some of the things that are like darker, but I think have a lot of important implications for brands that we just don't think about that box is like, oh, go research that. And that's why this job's been so fun. Cause you're like, why would anyone want to talk about that? We just want to sell ads. But I think that that's what's so different about working here. You get to sort of talk about things like that. Yeah, but the death of the, the death of the cookie. The one thing that's good, and, and it's it's so passe now. Like I even hate saying it. I've written like three articles on it at Three Pillar. I mean, like I've been here for seven months, and I've already written multiple articles on the death of the cookie. And I came from ad tech and martech, so like I lived that life for twenty years. But I think the good side of it is that companies have to rethink that strategy. It's not an ads based strategy for revenue that 
you know, persisted for the past hundred years. Now mm-hmm. all of a sudden it's like, well, what other things can we be doing? What can we tap into? And I think the psyche of the person on the other side and how maybe empathetic marketing is the way to do it. How maybe experiential marketing is the way to do it. Maybe not even experiential marketing, just creating experiences could be that. Uh, I don't know. I, well, well, the next five years, I think are going to be quite interesting. Um, I love I love what you're saying, Chris. And I wonder if the last 18 months actually reshaped that very quickly, right? Because if you think about it, yeah, we we've been, we we've lost so much. We've gained we've gained a bit, but it it has reshaped our values and it it's reshaped our value exchange with brands. I think what you're saying is exactly right. We're we're probably ripe for this experience and less about products because it's like, well, I could have lost everything. And now I just want to feel, I want to be a part of things that matter. And is, is that actually going to be the thing? So I, I'm, I'm, I'm just as curious as you. I saw something, somebody posted it on LinkedIn. I don't know if you know um, Terry Kawaja, but he's like a, like a, I don't know, a VC kind of guy. Kind of, he's funny. He, he was around the ad tech and martech space for years and, and just, I think he was he used to be a stand-up comedian, so he does all these videos. But he posted something. I don't know. He must have gone to an industry event, and he posted a chart that he drew, which was like hugs prior to you know hugs in the industry, and it showed like previous to COVID, and it was like a line sort of in the middle, like people didn't hug, <laughs> and then during COVID, it completely dropped off. And he's like, now hugs, you know, at industry <laughs> events, oh, yeah. the charts. It's like you know everybody's just like, oh my god, like. Even even a business circumstance, you know, they're like hugging each other. I noticed in the office when we were in the office last week, you know, it's like, hey, can can I can I give you a hug? Like I haven't met most people. Like, can I give you a hug? I, I think there's something there. There's something definitely that's changed to that. Maybe I hope persists. Me too. So. It's uh and again, these are the kind of conversations that I love having with Jennifer and now with you, Chris and I appreciate like these moments are what I appreciate. It, this Zoom didn't feel like a Zoom. <laughs> yeah. True. Well, well, we'll meet in person at some point. Yeah, I can't wait to host you at Code, and it's going to be so delightful. And hopefully, I get to sit next to Jennifer again. That was. Always <laughs> <fun>. <laughs> I hope so too. I hope so too. It'll be so nice to see you again in person. And uh, the the virtual has been fine. It's been great, but it'll really be nice to be able to ask you. Are you okay with a hug? Can I hug you? It's been so long. Edwin. Can I hug you? <laughs> There's this thing like where you do this and then you're like, uh, you know what? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm a hugger anyway. So it's real. you know, the last 18 months has just been, it's been so hard in so many ways, but I'm a hugger anyway. So it's, it's, uh, it's nice to get back to a little bit of that normalcy. And we will have to talk through that. I love that, that point that you made that 1918 and, you know, speeding through to 1929. And are we going to do that again? And what is it going to look like? And, you know, COVID, you know, a, a couple silver linings for a lot of people, a lot of devastation and just, just one or two silver linings. It slowed the world down a little bit and it allowed many people to, to kind of rethink uh, their values and, and what life was about for them and what they wanted. And, and also just, it just slowed everything down around you. And my fear, you know, just as, as friends sitting or ch- chatting over coffee, maybe a glass of wine, maybe I almost see us all having the world, having learned lessons, especially the United States. I won't say the world, especially the United States, the busy, 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 busy. And Everyone said they learned lessons and they took lessons away from it. And then I see people walk, jumping right back into in these like 
in, in much faster than I thought this jumping back into the busy, 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 busy. And I, I hope that isn't the case. I hope that people are able to businesses personally, professionally, I, I hope we're able to, whatever that means to individuals, I, I hope we almost don't jump right back into where we were and the values that some of the values the country held 18 months ago in terms of, again, working all these hours, not being near family, you know, just some things that have been interesting and that I've been reading a lot about and people have been talking about. And unfortunately, I see us kind of jumping right back into some of those same behaviors that we said and swore wouldn't happen. So we'll have to see the consumerism, the right, that 1918, 1929, we'll, we'll have to see. We'll have to see what this looks like in the next six months. I'm with you, Jennifer. I absolutely hope we've learned a lesson. We've been in this long enough that patterns should have formed. And I'm hopeful that what happens is when we get back to the old, we're like, oh, actually, this doesn't feel so good. Can we get back to that? So, and I forget, um, I mean, a a lot of people are doing the research. I forget who it was, but two weeks ago, three weeks ago, I'm reading this article and the research is showing 90% of CEOs believe their employees should be back in the office. Nine, I've never seen anything like this. Yeah. 90% of CEOs yeah. in the survey, 90% of employees felt the opposite. Yes. And so when do you ever see something so diametrically, you know, maybe you might see 60, 40 and be like, whoa, that's a big difference. 90 and 90 with yeah. opposite views of what should happen next when it comes to just work, you know, being in the office or not being in the office or working from home. And and that, it's going to be fascinating. I mean, the hashtag great resignation, I think is real. And it's going to, it, like you said, the lessons that human beings have learned over the last 18 months, it's going to be very interesting to see how that plays out in the workforce over the next six months, six, 12 months to see, you know, even people they said could move. Yes, you have our blessing. You may move to Seattle, right? You know, we're going to ordering everyone back and the number of resignations that have already come in now. Maybe they did that on purpose because they needed to shed some of their workforce. It's a terrible way to do it and speaks volume about potentially what that company and who they are. But it was very interesting. Again, this 90% of CEOs wanting back in the office and 90% of, of team members, employees saying no. So it's I'm so interested to see how this plays out and to see if, if in fact, talent does in fact walk and start joining companies that are very, I mean, I'm hiring someone right now. And the first thing I put on that, on that job description, hashtag work from anywhere. Right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you don't have to be in DC with me. I, I will, wherever you want to work, uh, I will, I will work with you. We will work together as a team. So yeah, I, I led with that. I had our, our talent you know team lead with that. Jennifer, I, I think you're right. I, I think, uh, but, but I also think workers, and consumers were gonna are gonna start to make those choices based on the way leaders are behaving. They got super yeah. rich during this pandemic, and now they're demanding things that might not be reasonable after eighteen months. And it's gonna take a bit, but the great resignation leads to the great stagnation and getting stuff done, which leads to bad stock prices. Which they will go, oh my god, like we made a mistake, you know, and right. we'll course correct. So. During every podcast, we ask the same questions of our guests and we call them the speed round. So we're going to start right. the speed round now, Edwin. Are you ready? Okay. All right. Let's do it. This will, be a, this will be a fun one. What's your favorite piece of technology? I love Apple TV. 
And uh, the reason why I like it is it's it's a content platform that literally has so many brands with individualized features, personalization algorithms, and content tastes uh, that can coexist. My favorite is is uh, Vicky, which is all K drama, <laughs> and it, it creates uh, this distribution that is consolidated, but not really at all uh, that I can control. And I think it it really represents a shift in how media is is working and is going to work uh, in the future. And uh, and we and it happened in less than a year, uh, ten ten years. And and it's it's fascinating to me. I love it. I use it every day. Oh my gosh, what a what a layered answer to that question. That that that's fantastic. Tells me lots about you. Thank you, Edwin. What was your first memorable interaction with technology? Something that as a kid you were like, ah, oh, I see the future here. I'm going to go way back to the late 80s. I don't know if you guys all remember the AWA uh, boom boxes that had the T-base. Yes, yes. Tape deck no, radio. Chris is shaking his head. <laughs> I, I know. I, I love... Is this a dual cassette? The dual cassette. The dual cassette. We all know. We all know. <laughs> I used to run to Thrifties. Yes, Thrifties, when I can get ice cream for 25 or 35 cents. Not Rite Aid. And I would struggle whether I should pay $3 more for the TDK cassettes when the Memorex was so much cheaper. Um, But I made the right choice. You made the right choice. choice. That's right. And when I gave my friends that mixtape that literally took like 19 hours to make, when you're like waiting for the radio station to play that next song, oh my God, like they'd be like a TDK gold cassette mixed by you and there was just something about that all the hard work guys i mean these days my 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 daughter who's 10 she'll share with me her spotify playlist i'm just like guys i wish you knew i wish you knew how hard this used to be so i literally had this conversation with my kids in the car yesterday i, I was like there was an art and and because it took time there was a thought that had to go into it. Like I had songs that were like a minute and 10 seconds long because <laughs> they fit at the end of a side of a tape. Yeah, I, you, I, you had to, definitely had to plan it so that you would not need to fast forward too much to play the other side. It, it's totally. a lost art. It needs to come yeah. back somehow. It's gotten too easy. I totally agree. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. What's your most used app on your phone other than email, Slack, and of course, Vox? Uh, I love Apple News. I love LinkedIn and Spotify. I, I just love the each of those apps and how they bring together things I love. And so whether it's information, really reading posts that you have, Jennifer, often. Um, and then on Spotify, some of my favorite podcasts, whether it's Pivot or... Uh, listening to my buddies who have a podcast called SBA or uh, Decoder, it's it's uh, those those are the things that I just use all the time. They're they're my favorite. Edwin, when you talk to other uh, leaders in the space, in the media space, or new employees, or someone who's just looking for advice, what is the piece of advice that you give to those folks that has served you well in your career? Uh, I I still need to practice this, but I. Tell them that there's no such thing as a right decision. You can only make decisions right. Because there's uh, plenty of times in my career that I'm like, oh my God, <laughs> what did I just do? And instead of you know sitting around doubting 
it is about moving forward and doing right by that decision as much as possible. You know, it uh, my my lack of or inability to do that can sometimes drive my staff and my wife crazy. And so I am definitely still trying to master my own advice. That's a good one to end on because that is that is some brilliant advice again for for your peers, for students, for others who are making decisions, because it is a fast moving world and and there are new careers being invented almost every day, like new facets of careers. And so I'm sure it can be overwhelming, especially for students and those early in their career as to the decisions they make. So so thank you for that. Edwin, thank you for being with us today. We, again, we've been wanting to speak with you for a while. I'm so glad that calendars aligned and it's really been an honor and a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thank you. This has been an episode of The Innovation Engine, a podcast from Three Pillar Global. If you have questions, comments, or guest suggestions, email us at info at threepillarglobal.com. Three